Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya uh, Namaskaram. Today I've been asked to, a question I've been asked to address is, this was a question asked by a friend called uh, Chandra Shekharan. Um, what he, what he wrote was, when describing Bhagavan's teaching, Michael quotes Ekam Eva Advaitiam from Chandokya Upanishad. But similar to the lucid description of the rest of the teachings, is there a methodical, uh, logical statement for Advaitam? In other words, why should we believe that reality is one uh, without the second? So that's the question. Um, what the, the, this um, this passage, Ekameva Dvaitiam, this comes in the Chandokya Upanishad. Um, so just to give some context, I'll first uh, explain what is said in, uh, uh, the, it's said in two verses of uh, uh, Chandokya Upanishad. That's in, um, in chapter 6, section 2, um, verse 1, the meaning is, um, this is, as in many of these Upanishads, they, this is a dialogue. So I think it's a father addressing his son, if I remember correctly, but uh, that's not, that's beside the point. So he addresses his son as Somya. Somya, before this world was manifest, there was only existence, one without a second. That is in Sanskrit, it's Sadeva, uh, Somya, Idam, Agre, Asid, Ekam, Eva, Advitium. That's the first line, the first uh, line of, uh, um, of uh, Upanishad mantra. Then it goes on to say, on this subject, some maintain that before this world was manifest, there was only non-existence, one without a second. Out of that non-existence, existence emerged. That's the view of some. <clears throat> that is answered in the second um, in the second verse uh, by a rhetorical question. Uh, Somya, what proof is there for this? That from nothing, something has emerged. That is the implication of this um, of this uh, rhetorical question. Is that uh, it's absurd to say that something emerged from nothing, but non-existence came from existence. Um, the reason is for this is uh, something that I'll uh, talk about a little later. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but uh, well, briefly, I'll just mention now that is in order for something, anything to come into existence, at least time must exist because uh, there, anything can happen only in time. So time must exist in order for something to come into existence. But if time exists, that means existence is already prior to uh, something coming into existence. So it, ca it cannot be from non-existence. It can only be from existence, but anything can emerge. Um, does that mean that time comes first? No, it doesn't. Um, uh, as we will understand later if we discuss this thing, discuss this more, because um, time is only time itself is an appearance. Um, it, and for something to appear, it must appear in the view of something. So to whom does time appear? Only to us as ego. So ego must precede time. Um, 
but ultimately, the ultimate truth is nothing is ever coming to existence. That is ajata. That's the ultimate truth. But that's not going this. This is not going this far. So, as I say, the rhetorical answer, the, 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 this this objection, but some maintain that existence has come from non-existence. This is answered by this rhetorical question, and then. Um, uh, the father goes on to say, uh, to repeat what he said first, rather, before this world came into being, O Somya, there was only existence, one without a second. So he's, in the second part of the second verse, he's repeating what he says in the first part of the first verse. So that is, uh, is very common in Upanishads and in other Indian philosophy. But uh, uh, an alternative point of view is put forward, that's called a purvapaksha, an objection, and then um, an answer is given to that. So the, the basic um, idea in these two verses is that before anything came into being, before this world came into being, what existed was, only, was existence, and existence is one only without a second. The word for existence, in the first verse, it begins sadeva, that means sat only. Sat means existence, or... Um, in the second verse, it's sattva evas. Sattva means, well, sat means being or existence. Sattva means beingness. So it amounts to the same. So what originally existed was only existence, nothing else. And that existence was ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. So <clears throat> this is not the only Upanishad, but, um, but, uh, uh, uses similar terms. That is, this term advitium is used in many, um, advitium means without a second. Uh, this term is used in many of the Upanishads. So this is an idea that is, occurs in many places in the Upanishads, but it's particularly um, uh, emphasized here. Um, and this term ekameva advitium, this is the basis of all the later Advaitic interpretation of the Upanishads. Of course, there, there are many um, there are many different interpretations of Advaita of, of Vedanta. Um, Advaita is just one among them. So, other interpretations that don't agree with Advaita say yes. In the beginning, there was only existence, um, but from that that existence. Uh, evolved into all this, that it became all this. That is called Parinamavada, the, um, the, the theory of, um, of becoming, of development, of uh, one thing becoming another. Um, but according to Advaita, there is always only one, one without a second. All the multiplicity is just an appearance. So why why do I often uh, quote this? Well, it's it's not only me who quote it. Bhagavan himself quotes it. That's part of the reason. I mean, this I quote it partly because this is a fundamental principle of Advaita, but I also quote it because it's something that Bhagavan quotes in the beginning of um, his Avatarake, That is the introduction that he wrote for his translation of Drikdrisi of Ivaka. He begins um, by saying. Ekam eva advaitiam brahmam. Uh, that's in quotation marks. That is one only without a second brahman. The implication is brahman is one only without a second. In this, these two verses of the Chandokya Upanishad, brahman isn't 
mentioned explicitly, but when it is said Sateva, that existence is Brahman. So Bhagavan, uh, uh, that's why Bhagavan quoted it as Ekam Eva Advaitiam Brahman. Uh, uh, one only without a second, Brahman. Implying Brahman is one only without a second. And then he, that because that's Sanskrit, he then explains it in Tamil, Adavadu Irendatra Brahman Andre Uldadu. That is uh, the, the secondless Brahman, the Brahman that is devoid of, a, of any, of two, of any second thing, alone exists, alone is what exists. Um, the, the reason he says this, he, he says, um, when that is the Advaita Siddhanta, that is the conclusion of Advaita. Um, uh, so, um, when when such is the case, if if, if Brahman alone exists, um, uh, how is it that instead of that, instead of Brahman shining, instead of Brahman being known, um, uh, prapanjam totram totruvan uh, ain? How how did this work universe appear? Instead of if Brahman is one only without a second, how does Brahman not appear as such, but it instead appear as this universe? That that's a question. And he Bhagavan he goes on in a long sentence to explain that this is answered by uh, Adi Shankara in this uh, in this text. Um, I won't go go into the whole sentence. So Bhagavan himself quotes this, and this is the fundamental. Advaita Siddhanta, the fundamental conclusion or, of, of Advaita. So um, that is why I often quote this, because Bhagavan has quoted it. Um, though uh, Bhagavan has quoted it, um, but he's also, um, he also often, um, uh, he, he also, in many places, he, he expresses the same idea. For example, in the um, in the seventh paragraph of Nana, he begins by saying, "Yatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupa Mondre." What actually exists is only Apmasarupa. And in Arunacha um, Aksharamamlai, in verse um, ninety, sorry, I just. <clears throat> Uh, verse 99 of Aksharamlai, he again refers to the same idea. Vedantate Vilangam Veda Arunachala. That means Arunachala, uh, Aral is a uh, word that is both a noun and a verb. As a, as a noun, it means uh, grace. As a verb, it means be gracious or graciously give. In this in context, it means graciously give the Veda Poral. The Veda Poral is a term in uh, a Tamil term, but means much the same as Vastu in Sanskrit, the substance of the Vedas. It can also mean the import, what, what the ultimate meaning of the Vedas, but what the Vedas ultimately are talking about. Uh, so that Veda Poral is the substance of the Vedas, or that which the Vedas are talking about. And what does he say about it? Vedantate Vera Velangum. That Veda Poral shines in Vedanta 
Berara, uh, without another, without a, that implies without a second. So he's, he's referring to the same idea. So we find this idea occurring so many times in Bhagavan's teachings. Um, and it all uh, connects back with this Upanishad, uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, statement in the, um, in the Chandoki Upanishad, one only without a second. Um, but but um, that is not the question I've been asked. The question I've been asked is, what is, is there a methodical, logical statement for Advaitam? I think by statement here, he means argument. Is there a logical reason why we should believe this? Why should we believe that the reality is one only without a second? Um, well, we have the authority of the Vedas, we have the authority of Bhagavan, but the, the Vedas obviously, um, the, the Vedanta is often is interpreted in many different ways. Uh, Bhagavan's interpretation is clear. Bhagavan's uh, 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 teachings are from the Advaitic perspective, from, so it's the Advaita interpretation of Vedanta. But why should we, do we have any logical reason for accepting this? Uh, yes, there is, there is a logical reason. That logical reason is very simple, but at the same time very deep and very subtle. So the, the, the premises of this argument may not be accepted by everyone, but if we're ready to accept Bhagavan's teachings as a whole, we will also be ready to accept the premises of this argument. The, the basic argument is that what exists and shines in sleep is one only without a second, namely ourself, the fundamental awareness I am. That is, in sleep, we do not experience anything other than ourself. What we experience in sleep is one only without a second. Um, <clears throat> so um, this, is, this is something that Bhagavan emphasized very, very much in his teachings, but the state in the state of sleep, we are aware of nothing other than ourselves. Um, this idea is also expressed in the Upanishads, but in the Upanishads, the, the, the states of waking, dream, and sleep are analyzed in various different ways. The most famous analysis of the, these three states is in the or most famous in the sense, most well-known, most popular, is what is given in the Mandukya Upanishad. Mandukya Upanishad analyzes four states, that is waking, dream, sleep, and the fourth state. As Bhagavan clarified, this fourth state, though it is called the fourth, it is not actually the fourth, it is the only existing state, that is the state of pure awareness. So, because the Mandukya Upanishad analyzes as four states, it appears that uh, this fourth state is something distinct from sleep. <coughs> it is distinct from sleep in one sense, but not in another sense. That is, both in both sleep and um, and. Uh, Churiya, the fourth state, both the states devoid of mind, because they is devoid of mind, is devoid of all differences. So internally, there is no difference between sleep and um, and Churiya. Why then are, are they distinguished as two different states? The reason is simple: from the perspective of the mind, 
in waking and dream, sleep seems to be a temporary state. That is, now we are in this waking state, or it could be in a dream state, waking and dream actually, according to Bhagavan, are one and the same. But because we're in this waking or dream state, we seem to have come out of sleep. So sleep, from the perspective of the mind, sleep seems to be a, a temporary state. Whereas Churiya is often, uh, the fourth state is obviously the eternal state. Um, sleep actually is eternal, but it seems to be temporary from the perspective of the mind. So from the perspective of the mind, there seems to be a distinction between sleep and Churiya. Though in, actually in that state, there is no distinction. Now we are viewing that state with viewing sleep from the perspective of the ego in in uh, waking or dream, and so sleep seems to be a temporary state. So as a temporary state, as one among the three states, sleep is not real. But as the only existing state, it is real. So in from one perspective, sleep is distinct from Churiya, and from another perspective, it is not distinct from Churiya. In the Brahad Aranya sorry, Brahad Aranyaka Upanishad, there is an analysis of the, um, of the three states in uh, chapter 4, section 3. Um, and uh, sleep is particularly spoken about from verse, um, well, uh, the verse I'm going to talk about particularly are from verse 23 to 30, but a little before that it begins, what is, um, I think, from about 21 or so. Wait a second, I'll just find it. Um, that is, the early verses describe how the, um, how the Purusha goes from dream to uh, waking and dream to waking. But then in verse, uh, verse 20, Oh, no, no, verse 19, I think. Um, As a hawk or falcon flying in the sky becomes tired and stretching its wings is bound for its nest, so does this Purusha run for this state where, falling asleep, he craves no desires and sees no dreams. So having talked about waking and dream, he, it now takes up the subject of, um, of sleep. Um, that's verse 19. And then there's some other um, things that are said. But the, the main point I wish to talk about is the verses where it's actually describing the state of sleep. Um, uh, in verse 23, what is said, um, what is referred to it as it here is Purusha. Purusha, we can take as Atman. Um, yeah, Purusha, yeah, Purusha and Atman are more or less the same, but in this context, the term Purusha is meant. That is the, the conscious being, let's say. Um, that it does not see in this state is because, although seeing, it does not see. This is very, this is, Bhagavan often talked about seeing without seeing, knowing without knowing, speaking without speaking. This is what is, is being talked about here. Uh, 
again, I'll just repeat that, that it does not see in this state is because although seeing then, it does not see. For the vision of the seer can never be lost because it is immortal. In other words, the very nature of, the, the, of awareness is to be aware. Uh, though it speaks about the seer, well, the seer is here uh, uh, a metaphor for what is aware. So um, what is aware is always aware, it's the implication here. The, the, the seeing is the very nature of the seer. So uh, if the seer, so the seer is always seeing, but in sleep it does not see. Why is that? Because, uh, uh, but there in sleep, that is, uh, uh, oh, but but there is not that second thing separate from it which it can see. Here, the term advitium, the same term that is used in the Chandoki Upanishad, is used. Both advitium, which means uh, without a second, and uh, anya, which means other. There's no other thing, there's no second thing for it to see. Um, this is something Bhagavan often uh, said uh, um, uh, regarding the state of sleep. Um, Bhagavan has taught it very explicitly, but in sleep there is no body and no world. But this is an idea that many people have difficulty in grasping. No, no, I may not be aware of the world or the body when I'm asleep, but others who are awake see it. But uh, how what Bhagavan replied to that is, since we do not cease to be aware in sleep, because we continue to be aware of our own existence, if the world existed in sleep, we should be aware of the existence of the world. The fact that we're not aware of the existence in, in of the world in sleep, but we are aware of our own existence, means that the world doesn't exist in sleep. So that is what this Upanishad is saying. There is no second thing, nothing other to see, to, to see or be known in sleep. So this is verse 23. And then the, the, the subsequent verses go on to say about each of the senses. Uh, verse 24 says that it does not smell in that state is because although smelling then, it does not smell. But the smeller's function of smelling can never be lost because it is immortal. But there is not that second thing uh, separate from it which it can smell. Um, this is expressed in a way analyzing each of the five senses, but ultimately what is impl un implied by this is what is aware is always aware. So if it's not aware of anything, that means there's nothing for it to be aware of. So in sleep, there's no second thing for, for us to, to see or to smell. And verse 25 says the same about taste, that it does not taste in that state is because Although tasting then, it does not taste. For the taster's function of tasting can never be lost because it is immortal. But there is not uh, that second thing separate from it, which it can taste. So there's no uh, separate from it is the anya. There's no uh, second thing, no uh, separate thing, no other thing for it to taste. Um, and verse 26, it doesn't mention one of the five senses, it mentions speaking. This is, uh, it's interesting that it brings in uh, speaking here. What is said in this verse is the same, in, in the same format. 
that it does not speak in that state is because although speaking, it does not speak. For the speaker's function of speaking can never be lost because it is immortal. But there is not that second thing separate from it uh, which it can speak. Um, this is, um, th that is, whereas the other verses in this series are talking about inputs, the inputs for the, of sight, of smell, of taste, and so on, these are inputs. Speaking is an output. Um, uh, that is, speaking means we express ourselves. So here speaking, obviously it has a deeper meaning. It's not just literally talking about uh, speaking. Speaking is expressing oneself. When we express ourselves, we make ourselves known, we, or we make whatever we speak about, we make that known. <clears throat> so what is implied here is that it is speaking. That, that is, that it does not speak in that state is because, although speaking then, it does not speak. If we if we consider this um, more deeply, what is implied here is, in sleep, we don't uh, we we don't cease to exist and shine in sleep. The shining of ourselves, that is the, the awareness of ourselves. Awareness is always swayam prakasi, self shining. It knows itself by its own light. <clears throat> so that 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 shining of awareness is what is metaphorically referred to here as uh, speaking. This is what Bhagavan often used to say, that the ultimate language is not the language of words, but the language of silence. Silence is ever speaking, uh, Bhagavan often used to say. What did he mean by it's ever speaking? Silence is, when Bhagavan talks about silence, he's not just talking about vocal silence or mental silence. He's talking about the silence of pure being. That silence of pure being, the silence of sat, in other words, is chit, is awareness, which is ever shining. <clears throat> so when he says, but, um, but silence is eternal speech, or eternal language, he means it's ever shining, because it is that satchit which is ever shining. So um, when it is said here that it does not speak in that state is because although speaking then it does not speak, what is implied is it it is ever shining by its own light, but it doesn't illumine anything else because there's no other thing to illumine, there's no other thing to be made known by it. Uh, this connects a little bit with um, what Bhagavan says in verse 12 of Uludunapta, which I'll speak about uh, a little later. So I'll just continue. Um, verse 27 is about hearing. Again, in the same format, that it does not hear in that state is because, although hearing then, it does not hear. For the listener's function of hearing can never be lost because it is immortal. But there is not in there is not that second thing separate from it which it can hear. Um, and twenty-eight is, is about thinking. Uh, that it does not think in that state is because although thinking, then it does not think. For the thinker's function of thinking can never be lost, because it is immortal. But there is not that second thing uh, separate from it. Uh, which it can think. Uh, and 29 
is about touch, for the other one of the five senses, but it hasn't been mentioned so far. That it does not touch in that state is because, although touching then, it does not touch. For the toucher's function of touching can never be lost because it is immortal. But there is not, uh, th that's, uh, there is not that second thing separate from it which it can touch. And finally, in verse 30, it, mentions, it, it summarizes all these by referring to knowing. That it does not know in that state is because, although knowing then, it does not know. For the knower's function of knowing can never be lost because it is immortal. But there is not that second thing separate from it which it can know. So the reason I, I refer to these verses is to show that what Bhagavan is teaching us is also there in the Upanishads. When what Bhagavan says about sleep, but in sleep there is no second thing separate from us for us to know. Um, this is this is this is an idea that is very clearly expressed in these verses of uh, this particular Upanishad, this Brahad Brahad Aranyaka Upanishad. Um, so, according to this, sleep is the perfect state in which there's no second thing. It is a state of ekam eva advitiam. The word advitiam is is used in all of these verses. Um, there's no second thing. And to back it up, it, it, the word uh, and um, the word anya is also used. There's no separate. There's no thing separate for it to know. So, um, um, since um, oh, why why this is particularly significant is because in Advaita there are many different levels of explanation because. A, Questions are asked from many different perspectives, and appropriate answers have to be given. So, in later, uh, the later development of, a, of Advaita, in classical Advaita, one of the common explanations that is given, when it, when it is the, since the uh, Manduki Upanishad draws a distinction between sleep and um, and Turiya, what is that distinction? That distinction is sleep is temporary, or at least it seems to be temporary from the perspective of ego in waking and dream, whereas Turiya is eternal. Since sleep is temporary, why is, why is sleep temporary? It's temporary because we've come out of sleep. So a question that is often asked is, if nothing exists in sleep, nothing except uh, Brahman exists in sleep, why does ego and Consequently, the world rise again in waking and dream. Um, the answer that is given is that all these things remain in sleep in a seed form. That's the seed form, the seeds that uh, sprout as all these things are the vasanas. And the, the totality of all vasanas is what is called the karana sarira, the causal body, or anandamaya kosha, uh, the sheath composed of bliss. Because will, because all vasanas, are, uh, the driving force behold, behind all vasanas is the basic desire that we all have to be happy, but the basic liking that we all have to be happy. So all vasanas are inclinations driven by this fundamental inclination to be happy. Uh, that's why it's called an kosha. And um, 
it's also what is called chittam, the will. So it, in, in classical Advaita, it is often said, but though all the, though everything else ceases to exist in sleep, Vakarana Sarira remains. But that explanation of Vakarana Sarira remains actually clashes with, for example, what is said in this Upanishad and what Bhagavan said. So this, to say that Vakarana Sarira remains in sleep, that is an explanation what Bhagavan would refer to as an explanation given to the questions of others. And Bhagavan uses this term, an explanation given, an answer given to the question of others. Bhagavan uses this term in Uludunapdu Anabandam when he's talking about, um, the, in many texts say, but for, um, but though uh, uh, Agamya and Sanchita cease to exist, uh, but Prarabdha remains for Vijnani. Uh, so Bhagavan says that, is, that statement is an answer given to the questions of others. That is, when people ask many questions without understanding the basic principles, they have to be given appropriate answers that are appropriate to their level of understanding. So this teaching that the Karana Sarira remains in sleep is a teach is an answer given to the question of others. It's a, an explanation that is necessary to give to those who lack deeper understanding. But from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, we shouldn't need such an answer. Why? Because according to Bhagavan, ego doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. So we can never explain how why or how ego has ever come into existence, because it has never come into existence. So trying to, when people used to ask Bhagavan, but why is there Maya? Why did ego arise? Bhagavan said, why or how? The wrong question. We need to investigate what is this ego? The ego is the same as Maya. Ego is itself Maya, as Bhagavan indicated clearly. Um, so if we investigate what this ego is, we will find there's no such thing at all. As he says in verse 17 of Upadeshundiya, Manati Nurube Maravadu Chava Manamenam If we investigate the mind without forgetting, in other words, we vigilantly investigate the form of the mind, the nature of the mind, we will find there's no such thing as mind at all. Um, so since there's no such thing as mind or ego at all, um, there's no need to explain how it came into existence. Then they, we cannot explain how it first came into existence, nor can we explain how it comes into existence um, from sleep. We need not explain it because it doesn't actually come into existence. But this is a very deep teaching, but not all people will be ready to accept. So other different explanations are given to suit people on the, at different levels. But according to the deeper teachings of Advaita, sleep is a state in which there is no second thing, no other thing. That is, if there's such a thing as the Karana Sarira, that's a second thing, because Brahman is not the Karana Sarira. So the Karana Sarira would be a second thing. But according to the Brahadaranyaka Upanishad and according to Bhagavan, in sleep there is no second thing. The reason we are not aware of anything other than ourselves in sleep is because nothing other than ourself actually exists there. What we are aware of in sleep is ourself alone. So 
why I say all this is sleep is the, if we want to find a logical reason for why we should believe that there is one only without a second, we have to, we have to go back to our experience of sleep. What is our experience of sleep? In sleep, we experience ourselves. We experience our own being, our fundamental awareness, I am, and no other thing, no second thing. So sleep is, a, is in sleep, what we experience is one only without a second. And what is the one we experience? It is existence alone, sateva, as Bhagavan says. So um, we all have, in a, we all experience a state in which we experience ourselves as one only without a second. <clears throat> um, this is an important point to accept. Before I go on to draw um, a further inference from this, I just want to touch upon, because it's relevant to what, what these verses of Abrahad and Aranya Kopanishad, um, that is, and it's also relevant to the idea that Bhagavan is often stressing, but what actually exists is one without a second. In verse 12 of um, Uludu Napadu, what Bhagavan says is, Arivu Ariyamayum Atradu Arivu Arivame. That is, what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge. Here, knowledge is used in the sense of, um, when he says it's actually knowledge, knowledge here is used in the sense of awareness. So that which is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually awareness. So true awareness is a void of, devoid of both knowledge and ignorance. Knowledge and ignorance, when he talks about knowledge and ignorance here, he's talking about knowledge and ignorance of other things. So the implication is but in the state of in the real awareness, pure awareness, is devoid of both knowledge of any other thing or ignorance of any other thing. How can it be devoid of both knowledge and ignorance? If it's devoid of knowledge, isn't that ignorance? No, it's devoid of both knowledge and ignorance. Why? Because knowledge and ignorance here means knowledge and ignorance about other things. But in the state of pure awareness, which we experience every day in sleep, there is no second thing. There's no other thing for it to know, as, that, as it's emphasized in the, those verses of uh, uh, Brahadaranyaka Upanishad. So, um, so uh, sleep is a state in which awareness shines devoid of both knowledge of anything else or ignorance of anything else, because there's no other thing, no, uh, nothing else for it to know or to not know. Um, and then he says in the next sentence of this verse, 12 of Wulinapru, Unme, uh, sorry, Ariyum Adu, Unme Arivu Ahadu. That which knows is not real knowledge. That which knows here implies that which knows things other than itself. What knows things other than itself is ego. That is not real knowledge. So, what is the real knowledge? He implies in the next sentence, Ari. Aridaku, Arivittaku, Anyum Indrai, Abibadal, Tan Arivahum. What that means is, since one shines without another for knowing or for causing to know, 
or causing to be known, it can be taken either way, oneself is knowledge. Um, one's, in other words, oneself, the real awareness is only ourself. Ourself, which ourself as we actually are, that is, not ourself as ego. As ego, we know other things, but in our real nature, we shine without another, without another. When he says, um, when he says, anyam indrai, without another, that means without a second. It has the same meaning of adoitium. So in our real nature, we shine without another, either for knowing or for causing to know or causing to be known. Um, this is why that, that it is causing to be known, this um, arivittaku, um, I, uh, this is why in that Upanishad it is said, but uh, uh, but though though uh, though speaking, it does not speak because there's no other thing for it about which to speak. Um, speaking means pausing to know. When you when you speak, when you say something, you 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 are bringing about uh, that if if someone informs if someone tells you something that you didn't know previously they cause you to know that thing so there's nothing for us to if in that state there's no other thing so there's nothing either to know or to cause to know or to cause to be known uh, it is such, it is, so in this sentence Bhagavan is very strongly emphasizing that in, the, in, in our real state, in the state of pure awareness, there is no other thing, there is no second thing. So the implication here is the same as Ekameva Dvaitya, one only without a second. And that is, Bhagavan is not just talking here about some some state which we do not know. We all know this state, we all experience this state every day in sleep. We experience a state in which we are aware of our self alone and no second thing, no other thing. But then he goes on to say in this sentence, parantru, uh, not avoid. What does he mean is not avoid? That is, though pure awareness is devoid of knowledge and ignorance of any other thing, it is not avoid. It, if knowledge and ignorance of other things were real, then it could be said the state in which there's no knowledge and ignorance of other things is an empty state, a state of void. But it's not a state of void because there's no other thing for it to know. Um, and then he ends the verse saying, um, uh, Ari, know the, uh, no, implying know this. Similarly, in verse 27 of Upadeshu India, he says very much the same thing. The first sentence is almost exactly the same as the first sentence of verse 12 of Uludunapadu. This is such an important idea. He stressed it both in Upadeshundia and in Uludunapadu. Arivu areyamium atra arive arivahum. That means only knowledge that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is knowledge. Um, knowledge here, as I say, implies awareness. So only that awareness that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance about anything else is implied, is knowledge. Unmeidu, uh, this is real, or this is the reality. Um, this alone is what is real. That state, that awareness that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance about anything else, that alone is what is real. Why is this? Aribadaku onruile, there is not anything for knowing. So exactly the same as is said in that uh, Upanishad about sleep, in that state of pure awareness, there's not anything for knowing. 
So since there's nothing for knowing in sleep, how can there be anything for knowing, anything to be known in the state of pure awareness, which is Churiya? Um, so why I talked about all these things is to emphasize, is to point out how much it's emphasized by Bhagavan and also by the Upanishads, that we all, that, that real awareness is devoid of, of knowledge and ignorance about other things because there's nothing else to know or to not know. Why is it devoid of ignorance? We can be said to be ignorant of something only if there's something of which we're ignorant. But when there's no second thing, the only thing that exists is, is sat, which is chit, which is ever shining. So Swayam Prakasha, it's, it shines by its own light. So we can never be ignorant of our own existence, where we are, because our own existence is self-shining. We are always aware I am. In waking and dream, we're aware of so many things. But we, even when we are aware of so many other things, we don't cease to be aware of our own existence. We're always aware I am. In sleep, we're also aware I am, but not aware of anything else, because there's nothing else for us to be aware of. Um, so we, in sleep, we, we cannot be said to be either to know anything or to not know anything, because there's nothing for us to know or to not know. All that exists in sleep is our own existence, which is ever shining as the pure awareness I am. So since we all experience a state in which we experience one only without a second, um, it's only in waking and dream that multiplicity appears. Since multiplicity is something that appears in waking and dream, but disappears in sleep, it is therefore not real. Why is it not real? That is the important point. This comes back to something that Bhagavan often said. Bhagavan often said, what exists at one time, but not at another time, does not actually exist, even when it seems to exist. This is a very, very important principle. What exists at one time, but not at another time, does not actually exist, even when it seems to exist. This is an idea that is, that, that is most famously expressed uh, but variously interpreted by different schools, but the Advaitic interpretation is very clear, in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, verse 16. Um, Bhagavan has translated this verse of, uh, in Bhagavad Gita Saram as verse 9. What is said in the first two sentences, what Bhagavan says in the first two sentences of his translation is, Ilada Tanaku uh, Irupu Ile. For that which, uh, for, for what does not exist, there is no existence. Ulladanaku uh, um, ilame embudu ille. For what does exist, there is not what is called non-existence. So in other words, for what exists, there is no non-existence. For what doesn't exist, there is, sorry, for, for what does not exist, there is no existence. For what uh, does exist, there is no non-existence. What does that imply? What, since what does exist, since there's no non-existence for what does exist, that means what does exist, what actually exists, always exists. It can never become non-existent. And what doesn't exist, what doesn't always exist, doesn't actually exist at all. 
because for what does not exist, there is no existence. So what actually exists is only what is permanent. As Bhagavan often used to say, but what is the what is the hallmark of what what is real? Or when Bhagavan talks about what is real and what is unreal, what he means by real is what actually exists. What he means by unreal is what doesn't actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So what is the hallmark of what is real, or what actually exists? Bhagavan says, it must be eternal. In other words, it must always exist. Something that exists at one time and not at another time doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. So it must be eternal. It must be unchanging. Because if a thing changes, it's one thing at one time and it becomes another thing at another time. Therefore, what it was previously ceases to exist when it becomes something else. Um, if we consider our body, once our body was a small baby, now that that baby that that baby body has now changed into this adult body. So the 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 baby body no longer exists. The adult body has replaced it. So neither the baby body nor the adult body are real because they uh, um, what that baby body existed in the past. It doesn't exist now. This adult body exists now, it didn't exist in the past, and it's not going to exist in the future. So it's not real. So anything that is changing is therefore not permanent. Whatever is not permanent is not real, because there can never be any non-existence of what actually exists. So what uh, anything that comes into existence and ceases to exist doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist, is the implication. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think I've explained that. Oh, yeah, what what is said in the in the Sanskrit verse in the original Sanskrit chapter two verse sixteen is uh, nasato vidyate bhavo. That means um, uh, uh, there's uh, of the non-existent asat. Uh, there, there is no um, Baba, there's no existence. Nabavo vidyate sataha. There is there's not non-existence uh, of the existent. That is, the existent can never be non-existent, but um, the, the, the non-existent can never be existent, is the implication. Obviously, this is the Advaitic interpretation of this verse. Others who are not who do not accept Advaita are not willing to accept this interpretation. So the word Baba, which means existence, also has other meanings depending on the context. So Baba can also mean permanent. So what how this verse is usually interpreted, there's no permanence of what of what is non-existent, and there's no impermanence of what is existent. So they, they slightly dilutes the meaning because they say, yes, um, things that appear, they do exist, but they're just not permanent. Whereas the Advaiti interpretation is, since they appear and disappear, they do not exist even when they seem to exist. So this is, this is why, since multiplicity appears only in waking and dream, it is not real because it doesn't, it's not permanent. 
this is where pe this objection that people raised when Bhagavan said, well, body and world don't exist in sleep. Oh, no, no, Bhagavan, they do exist. They, others know they exist. It's only we don't know they exist. And Bhagavan answered that by saying, you exist in sleep. You don't need others to tell you that you exist in sleep. You know very well you existed in sleep. Why then do you need others to tell you that the body and world exist in sleep? Since you didn't know their existence, they didn't exist. Uh, because they, that if, a, if since you were aware in sleep, if a body and world existed in sleep, you should have been aware of them. Why were you not aware of them? Because they didn't exist. That is the that is the um, view of Bhagavan. That is the view of uh, of, of Vedanta. That is view clearly expressed in this uh, those verses of uh, um, Brahad Aranyaka Upanishad that I referred to. Um, so. Um, why why did Bhagavan say, and why did this uh, verse of the Bhagavad Gita, why does it imply that what exists at one time but not at another time doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist? What is the reason for this? It's something, it's something what does not always exist is not intrinsically existent. If something is intrinsically existent, that is, if existence were its very nature, it couldn't cease to exist. So anything that seems to come into existence and ceases to exist, it's not intrinsically existent. Existence is not its very nature. Uh, for example, the first thing that comes into existence before anything else can come into existence is ego. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludnaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Because the reason he said that is because everything exists only in the view of ego. So, um, if ego were intrinsically existent, that is, if existence were the very nature of ego, it couldn't, could never cease to exist. The fact that it ceases to exist means it is not intrinsically existent. Since it is not intrinsically existent, it doesn't actually exist. It must borrow or derive its existence, its semi-existence, from something else, just as gold ornaments borrow their semi-existence from gold, their substance. Likewise, ego borrows its semi-existence from, um, from our real nature, Atmasurupa, what we actually are, uh, uh, from Satchit, which is its substance, what it actually is. So ego is not a real existence, it's a borrowed existence. Ego borrows its existence from ourself, from what we actually are. Um, this this idea that um, that anything that is not in, in, intrinsic must be borrowed from something else is often illustrated using the analogy of the property of heat. For example, supposing you have a a bowl of hot rice, is the rice intrinsically hot? No, it is not intrinsically hot. Uh, because uh, normally rice is not hot, it's cold. Uh, so it, it, since it, it has the property of heat, but it's not intrinsically hot, it must have borrowed its heat from some other, from something else. So from where did the rice borrow its heat? It borrowed its heat from boiling water. 
So is, is water intrinsically hot? No, it's not. It borrowed its heat from a hot pan. And uh, is the pan intrinsically hot? No, it's not. It borrowed its heat from a fire. Is fire intrinsically hot? Yes, because you can't have fire without heat. So fire is intrinsically hot. So anything that is not intrinsic, any property that is not intrinsic must be borrowed from something else. Like God, no, that, that is not to say that existence is a property, but in this respect, it's an, analogous to a property. So if something doesn't always exist, if it's, it's not intrinsically existent, so it must borrow its existence from something else. So all phenomena, all multiplicity, borrows its existence from where? It borrows its existence only from ego. It, it's not even, it doesn't even borrow its existence, it borrows its semi-existence from ego, because it's only in the view of ego that multiplicity seems to exist. That's why multiplicity seems to exist in waking and dream, but not in sleep, because ego seems to exist in waking and dream, but not in sleep. So it's only in the view of ego, but multiplicity seems to exist. So multiplicity borrows it, derives its semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. And from where does ego borrow its existence? From the real existence of ourself as we actually are. So uh, we, uh, all this all this, these are reasons why we have very good reason to accept that what actually exists is one only without a second. Because if, if more than one thing actually exists, we should know that thing in sleep because we're aware in sleep. Since we're not aware of anything else in sleep, since we know nothing else in sleep, why do we know nothing else in sleep? Because nothing else actually exists in sleep. What we know in sleep is only our own existence, because that alone is the real existence. That is the existence that alone remains when all other things, the semi-existence of all other things ceases, as in sleep and as in Churia, of course. Um, although Churia is eternal, so in Churia we can't even say everything ceases to exist in Churia, because... Uh, we can't say but what never existed has ever ceased to exist, but that is going further to the state of Ajata. We don't have to go that far at the moment. I mean, that's the ultimate truth, but that is not entirely relevant to what we're talking about now. What we're talking about now is that even when there seems to be multiplicity, what actually exists is one only without a second. Because the multiplicity is something that appears and disappears, therefore it's not real. It just seems to be real, but it's not actually real. It seems to exist, it doesn't actually exist. Um, and, and another pointer at the fact that there is uh, one only without a second is provided by Bhagavan in verse 33 of Uludunapadu. In verse 33 of Uludunapadu, he ends by saying, Andrei Aneva Anubuti Unmayal. Can I be taken there as expletive or as meaning because? Um, but Andrei Aneva Anubuti Unmay means being one is the truth, the experience of everyone. Or it, it can be taken to mean that, or being one is the truth of everyone's experience. Or being one is the truth 
as is known by the experience of everyone. That's the implication. That is, being one alone is what is real. Alone is what is real because that is the experience of everyone. We all experience ourselves as one. And the only existence that is certain is our own existence, which is one. Why, why, can, why do we say our own existence is the only existence that is certain? Because other things seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. And even ego seems to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So um, whatever seems to exist in the view of, whatever seems to exist, um, if it doesn't know its own existence, it doesn't actually exist. Because as Bhagavan said, one of the hallmarks of what is real is it must be eternal, it must be um, self, it must be unchanging. I forgot to say this earlier. It must be self-shining, swayam prakasa. It must know itself by its own light of awareness. So only awareness knows its only pure awareness knows itself by its own light of awareness. Even ego, which now seems to be self-shining, is not actually self-shining because it is the ego ceases to exist in sleep. When it ceases to exist in sleep, it ceases to be aware. So ego borrows its awareness from the real awareness that is ourself. Um, so, um, so, <clears throat> so ego is not a real existence, nor is anything else real. The only existence that, about which we can be certain is our own existence. All other things, all we can say about them is they seem to exist. Yes, the world seems to exist, the body seems to exist, the mind seems to exist, ego seems to exist, but do they actually exist? We can't be sure of the existence of any of them. In fact, we can logically conclude that none of them actually exist because they all cease to exist in sleep. Since they all cease to exist in sleep, they can't be a real existence. They're only a, they are, the existence that they seem to have in waking and dream is a borrowed existence. From where does it borrow its semi existence? Only from the real existence of ourself. So we alone are one only without a second. So there are, to, to, to recapitulate very simply, we, since we experience ourselves as one only without a second in sleep, and since multiplicity appears only in waking and dream, Multiplicity cannot be real because it's only a temporary appearance. What is real must always uh, exist and must always shine. What always exists and always shine is only our own existence, I am. That fundamental awareness I am, that is what shines in waking, in dream, and in sleep, and of course in Churia. So it, in waking and dream, it shines seemingly along with other things. In sleep and in Churia, it shines alone, one only without a second, as is emphasized in those verses of, uh, um, of uh, Brahadaranyaka Upanishad, and as Bhagavan repeatedly emphasized in his teachings. So this is the logical reason why we should accept that there's one only without a second. Of course, we need to accept all the premises, which many people won't accept. But if we're ready to accept Bhagavan's teachings, we have to accept all these premises, because they're perfectly reasonable, logical premises. 
But the most important question that wasn't asked, but I, I, I will pose the question now, what is the practical significance of this teaching? Because the hallmark of Bhagavan's teachings is Bhagavan's teachings are extremely practical. So if Bhagavan emphasizes something very strongly in his teaching, as he emphasizes this, but we are one only without a second, why he must be doing so for a practical reason. So what is the practical significance of this teaching? We can, we can, we can understand the practical reason for this from verse 26 of Upadesha India. What Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesha India is Tanai iritale tanai aridalam tanai rendatradal undipara tanmaya nishte id undipara. What that means is tanai iritale tanai aridalam. Being oneself alone is knowing oneself. Why is this the case? He gives the answer. Tan irendatradal. Uh, oneself is devoid of two. When he says irendatradu, uh, this is the same term when when in the, his avatarake for um, for Drikdrisi uh, Viveka, when he explains the meaning of ekameva advaitiyam brahmam, he says irendatra. Uh, sorry, I'll just get it again. He says, Ekameva Advaitiam Brahmam, Adavadu, Irendatra Brahmam Andre Uladu. Ekameva Advaitiam Brahman. That is, a Brahman which is without two, or a, uh, without, implies without a second, alone exists. So this same Irendatra is the same term he uses here in this verse 26 of Upadeshundia. Tan Irendatra Dal means since oneself is devoid of two, implies since oneself is without a second. So why is this a reason for what he said in the first half of the sentence? <laughs> because we are not, we are one, not two. So knowing ourselves is not one thing knowing some other thing. So when we know anything other than ourselves, we know it as we are the subject, what we know is the object. But knowing ourselves is not, it doesn't involve a subject and an object. It doesn't involve one thing knowing another thing. It's we ourselves knowing ourselves. So how do we know ourselves? Because what we actually are is pure awareness. So we know ourselves just by being ourselves, just by being pure awareness. And what does he mean by being ourselves? We are always ourselves. So what is special about being ourselves? Yes, we always we we are always ourselves and we always know ourselves. However, though we are always ourselves, we now know ourselves not as ourselves alone. We know ourselves as I am this person, I am this body, I am Michael, I am whoever. Um, so though we know ourselves, we don't know ourselves as we actually are. So when he says being ourself, it alone is knowing ourself. What he implies is being as we actually are, 
is knowing ourselves as we actually are. So what does being as we actually are mean? It means being without rising as ego. So we know ourselves only when we, in that state, when we remain without rising to know anything else. But that is when we rise as ego, we know so many other things. So to know anything other than ourselves, to know any second thing, we must rise as ego. But to, in order to be ourselves, to be as we actually are, we need to be without rising as ego. We need to know nothing other than ourselves. That alone is knowing ourselves. Um, we can know ourselves only by being as we actually are. Because we, we, what we actually are is devoid of two. So it's not one thing knowing another thing. They're not two selves, one self to know another self. That's why Bhagavan often used to say, Atmanyana is not a new knowledge to be attained in future. Atmanyana is shining even now as ourself. We ourselves are jnana. Bhagavan said, if jnana were a new knowledge to be attained, it would certainly be lost. Because whatever comes newly it will certainly be lost. Um, well, that is, whatever comes has to go. So if, if, if jnana were some new knowledge that we are to attain in future, when we attain it, we would sooner or later lose it. So jnana is not a new knowledge to be attained in future. Jnana is ever, is eternal. It is ever present. In order to see ourselves as the jnana, jnana means pure awareness, as the jnana that we actually are, all we need to do is to turn within and see ourselves as we actually are. By turning within, to the extent to which we look outwards, we rise and stand as ego. By the extent to which we look inwards, we, uh, we subside back into ourselves and remain as the pure being that we actually are. That, that, this is what Bhagavan implies in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, in which he says about, he describes ego as a formless phantom. Uruvatra Payahande, the formless phantom or demon ego. Um, it's formless because it's got no form of its own. So how did it, since it's got no form of its own, it's got no separate, exi it, it normally has no separate existence. In order to have a seeming separate existence, it must grasp a form as itself. That's why he says in that verse, um, Urupatri Undam, grasping form, it comes into existence. That is, as soon as ego rises, it grasps the form of a body and it takes itself to be, I am this body. So Bhagavan often used to say, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. Because ego cannot stand for a moment without grasping a body as itself. It's, that body isn't actually itself, but as if that body is itself. So grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Ego cannot stand for a moment without grasping the form of a body as itself. Urupatri uh, undu mika ongum. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. That is, having grasped the form of a body as I, ego doesn't stop there. It's constantly going out with grasping a, 
other forms, forms of thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, sights, sounds, tastes, forms of the world that come, seem to uh, come in through the five senses, seem to, no, no, um, no, because there's no world out there actually, but five senses seem to be windows through which we see external objects. All these are forms that ego is constantly grasping, and by grasping forms, in other words, by grasping anything other than itself, it is feeding itself, and thereby it, it flourishes, it, it grows fat. Bhagavan puts it beautifully in Tamil, Urupatri Undu, grasping and feeding on form, Mika uh, Ongom, it, 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 uh, it swells up, it grows, it flourishes. Uruvitu um, Urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. All these forms are other things. They all these forms are second things. So it, for ego, there's always a second thing. There's always things other than itself. Um, uh, but then he the important thing in this verse is he then says, Tedinal Otumpidicum. Tedinal literally means if seeking. If if what is to seek what? That is, if ego seeks its own reality. Instead of grasping form, if it tries to grasp itself to see who am I, if it tries to hold on to itself, autumn pidicum, it takes flight, it runs away. In other words, ego, ego rises, stands and flourishes by attending to other things. It, by attending to itself, it subsides and dissolves back into its source. So, but in order to be as we actually are, and thereby know ourselves as we actually are, we need to turn our attention within and thereby subside back into our source and to be the pure awareness, the one only without a second, but we actually are. So um, that's a rather long explanation, but I, I hope that's a useful explanation because this is this 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 is the the most fundamental principle of Advaita is that there's one only without a second. And what is that one only thing? The same Chandokya Upanishad says, Tattvamasi, you are that. So we ourselves are one only without a second. So understanding this and understanding the practical, understanding why this is the case, why we can logically infer that we are one only without a second, because we exist and shine in sleep as one only without a second, it's only in waking and dream when we rise as ego that other things seem to exist. So what is real is one only without a second. That what we actually are is one only without a second. So understanding the reason for this, and most importantly, understanding the practical significance of this. How is this practically significant? Because so long as if we meditate on anything other than ourselves, any second thing, we are feeding this ego and ego will flourish. So in order to bring about the dissolution of ego, we shouldn't meditate on any second thing, anything other than ourself. We should meditate on ourself alone. So self-investigation means fixing our mind on ourself alone, as Bhagavan says in Nana. Fixing our mind on ourself alone means attending to nothing other than ourself. So when we attend to nothing other than ourself, what we are aware of is ourself alone, one only without a second. So since the, our real nature is one only without a second, no practice that involves any second thing can lead us to our real nature. So in order to return to our real nature and to be as we actually are, 
we must be in a state of one only without a second. We can be in that state by holding on to self-attentiveness. Of course, we're also in that state in sleep. But in sleep, we fall asleep because of tiredness. Since we fall asleep because of tiredness, ego is not thereby destroyed. So uh, though ego doesn't exist in sleep, it comes into existence again in waking and dream. In order to, for ego to be destroyed in such a way that it never comes into existence again, as Bhagavan says in the first verse of Anma Vide, in order for thought to cease in such a way that it will not revive it, even an iota, that it can be brought about only by self-investigation. Only by self-investigation will ego subside in such a way that it will never rise again. In other words, will ego subside not in manolaya, like sleep, but in manonasa, a complete uh, annihilation of ego, the state in which it is clearly known but no such thing as ego has ever existed. So this is an extremely important teaching. It's the very heart of Advaita, it's the very heart of Bhagavan's teachings, and it's the very heart of the practical application of Bhagavan's teachings. That is, what is the efficacy of self-investigation? Because self-investigation alone is the true Advaita Abhyasa. It's the only Abhyasa in which there's one only without a second. Because what is meditating and what is meditated on is the same thing, namely ego. It is ego attending to itself. And since ego as such doesn't exist, when it attends to itself, it is actually attending to its underlying reality, just as when we look carefully at what seems to be a snake, what we're actually looking at is a snake, is a rope, sorry. If we look at the snake carefully enough, we see, oh, it never was a snake, it's always only a rope. Likewise, if we look at this ego carefully enough, we will see the, its underlying reality, which is such it, one only without a second, which is what we always actually are. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya Hi Michael. Um, no. So the first question is, uh, what did Ramana mean when he said that we should just be? I seem to remember him saying, don't meditate, just be. Don't think that you are, be. Don't think about being, you are. Just be, don't meditate, just be, just be. Um, also, is paying attention to what a thought of our being refers to the same thing as paying attention to the thought I or I am referred to? Let me see what this means. Um, is paying attention to what a thought about our being refers to the same as paying attention to what the thought I or I am referred to. Is that clear? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. That is what I am refers to is our being. We don't have to think about our being, we just have to attend to our being. Um, the passage that is referred to where it is recorded, but Bhagavan said, don't just be, don't uh, meditate, just be, um, don't think that you are just be. Bhagavan is emphasizing there that the real nature of self-attentiveness is just being. How can we, that, that is, 
in um, in Nana, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, "What what is just being?" Um, he says, um, "Summa irupadavadu manate atma sarupa leka sevade." Just uh, what just being is is uh, making the mind dissolve in Atma Swarupa. So how can we make the mind dissolve in Atma Swarupa? As Bhagavan has made it clear, we can make the mind dissolve in Atma Swarupa only by attending to our own being. So long as we attend to anything other than ourselves, we are nourishing and, free and, and sustaining ego, as he implies in that verse 25 of Ulugnapram that I was referring to a short while earlier. So in order to bring about the, the dissolution of the mind in Atmasarupa, what we need to attend to is only to ourself. Bhagavan also implied this very clearly in, um, in Upadesha Undia. In, um, in verse 8 of Upadesha Undia, what Bhagavan says is that, that is, up to this point, he's been talking about Nishkarmiya Karma. That is, uh, and he talks about Nishkarmiya Karma. There are three types of Nishkarmiya Karma. Action, uh, Nishkarmiya Karma means action done without desire. And done for the love of God is uh, the implication of what he says in verse 3. Then in verse 4, he says, this is certain. Uja, um, Japa, and Dhyana are actions of mind, speech, and body. In this order, each is, uh, is superior to the previous one. What he means here is, uh, that is in verse 3 he had said, but um, in verse 2 he said, action will not give liberation. In, then in verse 3 he said, Nishkarmiya karma, that is action done without desire, Kartanaku, uh, for God, implying for the love of God, um, will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. So action is not the way to liberation, but if action is done without desire and for the love of God, it will show the way to liberation. So what type of actions can we do? We can do puja, japa, and dhyana. That's action by body, speech, or mind. Then in verse 5, he says, what is puja? It's, if you consider everything as God, whatever action you do, worshipping, doing appropriate action with the attitude that everything is God, is good worship of God. So he gives a very broad definition of worship. Then he talks about japa in the next verse. Then he talks about dhyana. Each of these is superior to the previous one. What does he mean by superior? It is more effective in purifying the mind. So up to verse 7, he's talking about action, action of body, action of speech, and action of mind. In verse 8, what he says is, rather than Anyabhava, an Anyabhava in which he is I, certainly is the best among all. What's he mean by Anyabhava? <laughs> Anya means what is other. Bhava in this context means meditation. So rather than meditating on what is other, the implication is, rather than meditating on God as if he is other than ourselves, 
That is, so long as we're meditating on God as a name or form, he's, God seems to be something other than ourselves. So rather than that, meditating on God as a name or form, as if he was something other than ourselves, Ananya Baba. Ananya Baba means meditation on what is not other. Not other than what? Not other than ourselves. And he, he, he clarifies that, Ananya Baba, by saying, Avanaham Ahum Ananya Baba. Ananya Baba, in which he is I. So, with the understanding that God is that which is shining in our heart as I, meditating on nothing other than I is certainly the best among all. So, what he refers to as Ananya Baba here is, um, is self-attentiveness. It's Atma Vichara. It's, it's another way of describing Atma Vichara. And he says it is certainly best among all. Why, in the context, best among all means it's the most efficacious way of purifying the mind. It is meditating on ourself alone, meditating on nothing other than ourself is the only means to destroy the mind. Not only is it the most only means to destroy the mind, it's the most effective means to purify the mind. What is meant by purifying the mind? The impurities in the mind are the vasanas. Vishayabhasana, uh, the outward going inclinations, those are weakened to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness or Ananya Baba. But then the important thing is the next verse. In verse 9 he says, Baba Balatinal, by the strength of that meditation. Which meditation? The implication is that Ananya Baba, that meditation on nothing other than ourselves. So here Baba Balatinal, by the strength of meditation, implies by the strength of meditation on ourself alone, meditation on nothing other than ourself. So, in other words, by the strength of self attentiveness, uh, Baba to Irutale, being in Satbhava, which is Bhavana Tita, which transcends Bhavana. Bhavana here implies meditation on other things, but meditating on anything other than ourselves is a mental activity. Whereas meditation on ourself alone is not a mental activity, it is a cessation of all mental activity. So, by the strength of that self-attentiveness, being in Satbhava, which transcends mental activity, alone is Parabhakti Tattva. So, what he describes here as being in Satbhava, Satbhava means the state of being. So, being in the state of being, that is what he means in other places when he talks of sumairabdu, be just being. So, being in the state of being is just being. How to be in that state of being? Only by the strength of meditation. But what meditation? Meditation on ourself alone. Meditation on nothing other than ourself. So, in that passage, which I think comes from talks or somewhere, when Bhagavan says, uh, don't meditate, just be, he means don't meditate on anything other than yourself. When he says don't think about uh, 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 being, what he's talking about, he's referring there to many people when they hear, Patramasi, you are Brahman. Oh, I am Brahman. So I must think, I am Brahman, I am Brahman, I am That's the sort of, that's what I assume is he's referring to there. Because Bhagavan never said, don't attend to yourself. All Bhagavan's teachings are pointing to uh, the, the core practice is this practice of self-attentiveness. 
as he described it in Nana, Sadakalamam Manate Atma Vil Keeping the mind fixed on oneself, always keeping the mind fixed on oneself. That is alone is Atma Vichara. That alone is the means by which we remain as we actually are, remain in the state of just being. And only by just being as we actually are can we know ourselves as we actually are. So I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. The thing is, there are many nice ideas recorded in books like talks and so on, but they're not perfectly recorded. So Bhagavan would have been speaking in Tamil, it's recorded in English. What is recorded is what the, the person who recorded it, what they were able to grasp. But so often the, 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 the nuances, the subtleties of what Bhagavan is saying are often lost in recordings in books like talks and day by day and so on. So though very useful ideas there, we we need to take it all with a pinch of salt. We need to we need to compare it against Bhagavan's own original writings where we get the where Bhagavan expresses himself so clearly and so unambiguously. The next question is how can we come to the conclusion that we are aware of the self when in sleep, but not aware of the world? We are conscious of neither, but probably aware of both. Think about it. We, we definitely are not aware of the body or world when we're asleep. We, we, we are not aware of anything except our own existence. We, we clearly know I slept. That is, if we think about it, just we should we need to think carefully about these things. We are all aware of not just two states, we're aware of three states. In two states, namely waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as a body and we're aware of other things. But we're also aware of having been in a third state in which we were not aware of anything. How can we be aware? of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything, if we were not aware of being in that state, we weren't aware of anything. We weren't aware of any object because there, there was no second thing for us to be aware of. But we, we were aware, I am. We are aware of our existence. Um, it, it, a little bit of deep reflection should make this clear to us. This will also become clear to us. This will become more and more clear to us the more we put this into practice. We, we put Bhagavan's teachings into practice. Because what we are doing when we practice self investigation, we are attending just to our own being. The more we attend to our own being, the more our being shines clearly, distinct from all the adjuncts with which it's now conflated. Yes, we're still aware of ourselves as I am this body, because ego hasn't yet been completely annihilated. But the more we attend to our being, the more we begin, clearly we begin to see that our existence, our being, is something separate from this ident false identification, I am this body. So the more we become familiar with our being, in waking and dream by practicing self-attentiveness, the more clear it will become to us, but we were very clearly aware of our being in sleep. But even if it's even if we haven't put in enough practice yet to for that to be clear, a little bit of 
deep thinking about it should make it clear to us. Yes, I'm. We're all aware, but we 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 are not always waking or always dreaming. There is a third state in which we are neither aware of this waking world nor aware of any dream world. But it, from the perspective of ego in waking and dream, sleep seems to be a state of darkness, a state of we we have no clear impression of what we experienced in sleep. That is because we as ego were not there, but we were there at the fundamental awareness I am. So why are we not aware? Why are we now not aware of sleep as it actually was experienced by us? Because what we experienced in sleep is only I am, a pure I am. But now that pure I am, we're experiencing mixed and conflated with adjuncts. We're not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am, but not just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person. So, because as ego, our awareness of ourselves as we actually are is now clouded by this false superimposition of this false awareness, I am this body, that same false awareness, I am this body, but is obscuring us being aware of our being as it actually is now, prevents us being aware of our being as it actually was in sleep. But even though we cannot now recall exactly that experience of pure awareness as it was in sleep, we are clearly aware, yes, I slept. The fact that we are aware I slept means we were aware of being in a state in which we were not aware of anything. So we were aware, but not aware of anything. Why were we not aware of anything? Because as, as it's clearly said in that Upanishad, and as Bhagavan often emphasized, there's nothing else in sleep for us to know. There's no body or world in sleep. All that shines in sleep is I am. Our own being, our own fundamental awareness, such it. If that isn't clear to us, we need to think carefully about it. That is why the teachings, we shouldn't just read the teachings superficially. We need to read them attentively. Pay close attention to what Bhagavan is saying. That is the meaning of sravana. Paying close, being attentively reading, not just superficially reading. That is true sravana. And we need to think carefully about it, make sense of what Bhagavan is saying. So we need to think about it. Why does Bhagavan say we're aware that state, sleep is a state of pure, pure knowledge, pure awareness, and state of sleep, waking a dream, a state of pure ignorance. Why does he say that? We need to make sense of it. So we need to think deeply about it. And most important, that's for manana, thinking deeply about it to make sense of it is manana. But most important of all is nidityasana, actually putting it into practice by deeply con nidityasana literally means deep contemplation. What are we to con deeply contemplate? That which is one only without a second, namely our own existence. That is what we need to co contemplate deeply. The more we do that, the more clarity we will get to understand what Bhagavan is saying. So, the more we put this into practice, the more all our questions will dissolve. So, we we should... We should, during the course of our practice, reach a point where almost all questions 
dissolve even before they arise because the answer is so clear from i mean bhagavan if we if we if we we can if we understand bhagavan's teachings deeply and correctly we will find the answer to all questions are there either explicitly or implicitly in bhagavan's own writings in his own original words in uludunaptu nana all these works, it's, it's all there. Bhagavan has said it all. But we need to understand, that is, Bhagavan is a perfect broadcasting station. If there's a defect, the defect is in the, in the receiving set. We are still like radios out of tune. So we need to attune the radio be better and better, to get better and better reception. So, in other words, we need to attune our mind more and more to Bhagavan's teaching. The more our minds are attuned to his teachings, by Sravana, Manana, Nidityasana, Nidityasana most important, the more clear his teachings will become, the more the, the, the sound coming from the radio will be is clear to the extent the radio is well-tuned. So our mind needs to be well-tuned by Sravana, Manana, and most importantly, by Nidityasana. Then all these things, then all our questions will dissolve. That is, the answer to the questions will become clear to us, because it's all there in Bhagavan's teachings, if we, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. The next question is, how can we come to the conclusion that we are aware of the self? Oh, sorry. Sorry, it's the next one. Uh, oh, can I just say one more thing about that? The very word, aware of the self. When we talk about the self, it sounds like some second thing. But the self is one without a second. So it's not the self. It is myself. I myself. I am aware of myself. We are aware of ourselves. It's one only without a second. So it, the, 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 the way it's translated, often these things are translated by people who lack deep and subtle understanding. So in English, when we talk about the self, it makes it sound like some other thing. Yes, I, I'm not aware of anything called the self in sleep. All I'm aware of is myself. I am. That's all that we're aware of. So we need, we need to not only refine our, uh, that is, in order to refine our understanding, we also need to refine the way the understanding is expressed in words. And often in the translations, the, the way things are translated doesn't do justice to the original. In Tamil and Sanskrit, there's no such term as the self. Well, there's no definite article, there are no capital letters. So in Tamil, Bhagavan usually used the term tan. Tan means oneself. Or if he want, mean, meant to refer to our real nature, he would use the term swarupa or atmasarupa. Uh, swarupa means own form, but implies real nature, the real nature of ourselves, what we actually are. He also sometimes used the term atman. Atman in Sanskrit, but the primary sense in which the term atman is used in philosophical texts is as a pronoun, meaning oneself. It can also, in certain contexts, it's used as a noun, meaning um, 
spirit or soul or whatever, so, but, but, but the essential meaning of Atman, as it is used in philosophical context, is simply oneself. Oneself means ourself. We, we, uh, I myself, you yourself. Next question is, in Happiness and the Art of Being, Michael explains the illusion of space and time from the perspective of Bhagwan's teachings. Would you please elaborate on this? Thank you. Okay. This was something I was planning to bring up at a later meeting because there were a couple of questions, a couple of comments on YouTube, um, uh, on two different videos on YouTube uh, last month sometime. Um, yes. Uh, <clears throat> Bhagavan has, um, well, we can connect with, with this with, um, with, uh, the, the first question I was asked, uh, that I addressed today, which is about one only without a second. What actually exists is one only without a second. Or as Bhagavan said in Nana verse, uh, yeah, paragraph 7, Yatatamai Ulladu Atmasarupa Mondre. What actually exists is only Atmasarupa. Uh, Atmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. So we alone are what actually exists. So we are one only without a second. So time and space do not actually exist. Bhagavan has made this very clear in verse uh, 16 of Uludunapadu. That is, he's made it very clear, but we have to understand it, he, Bhagavan often expresses things in a very deep way. But So we need to think about it carefully to understand what he's talking about. What he says in verse 16 of Uludunapadu, he begins with a rhetorical question. Namandri naledu nadedu nadunkal. Nadunkal means when we investigate. Uh, Namandri means except we. Naledu, where is time? Naduedu, where is place? So, when we investigate, except we, where is time and where is place? This is actually a difficult sentence to adequately translate into English because of this word andri. He says namandri, which I translate here as except we. But andri is used in a slightly broader sense than except in English. Uh, to illustrate this, in English, if you want to say um, there's no there's no furniture in the room except a table, we use the word except. But if you want to say there are no chairs in the room, but only a table, we have to say but only. We can't say except. We can't say there are no chairs in the room except a table. But in Tamil, this word andri would be used in both cases. So andri means both except and but only. But we can use but only in, in a positive sentence. We can say there are no chairs but only a table. But in an interrogative sentence, we can't use but only. So if this sentence 
Well, when this is a rhetorical question. So if this rhetorical question, if Bhagavan had put it as a statement, we could translate it as, as there is no time, there is no place, but only we. But as a, as a question, we can't say, but only we, where is time, where is space? We have to say, except we. So the, the implication of this sentence, but, but, but how it's clearly understood in Tamil is, except other than ourself, where is time and where is space? There's no time and no space. If, but he says, Nadunkal, when we investigate, when we investigate what? The implication is when we investigate ourselves. If we investigate time and space, they seem to be real. But if we investigate ourselves, we will find that we alone are real, one only without a second, and that there's no time, no space. Um, here Bhagavan uses, when you're referring to we, he uses the pronoun nam. Nam means we, but in Tamil there are two, two words that mean we. There's nam and nangal. Nam is the inclusive uh, form, Nangal is the exclusive form. So if I, if, if you're talking to um, a group of people uh, and you want to say something about yourself and others, but excluding the person you're speaking to, for example, supposing you're, um, <clears throat> you're a Hindu speaking to a Christian, and you want to say, we Hindus, you have to say Nangal, because you're not including Christian among the Hindus. But if you want to say, we religious people, you're including both the Hindus and the Christians in religious people, so you would say Nam. So Nam includes the person who is being addressed, whereas Nangal excludes the person who is being addressed. So Bhagavan often uses this inclusive uh, first-person plural pronoun Nam. Though he uses it, though it's a plural pronoun, he uses it in a singular sense. Just like, for example, in um, in English, we often use they in a singular sense. If if um, if someone wants to leave the hall now, um, they may do so. We we say someone is singular, but we say they because we don't want to say he or she. So we say they as an as a, as a to, to include both he and she. So that's what's called the, the singular they. Likewise, this is a, though Bhagavan uses this plural form, he uses it in a singular sense because what Bhagavan is talking about is one. So if he were to say I, he would exclude us. If he were to say you, he would exclude himself. So he often uses the word nam. But we need to understand from the context whether the nam he is referring to is referring to ourself as ego or ourself as the world. It's, uh, sorry, or, or ourself as we actually are, sorry. Um, in the first verse of Uludunapadu, he begins, nam ulahum kandalal, because we see the world. There, who is the we who sees the world? It is ourself as ego. That's why we, we, the, in that context, nam refers to ego. But in this context, verse 16, when he says, uh, except we, where is time and where is space, he's not referring to ego, he's referring to our real nature. So the implication of this sentence is that 
There is no time, there is no space, there is only ourself. The fact that Nam here refers to our real nature is made clear by him in the Kalivemba version of this verse. In the Kalivemba version of this verse, he's, he, before Nam, he says, Unara Nindra Porul. Porul is a Tamil word that means the same as Vastu in Sanskrit. It means substance, in the sense of the real substance. And he says, Unara Nindra Porul. That Unara is the infinitive of Una, means to know. Um, but when the, the infinitive is often used in Tamil in an adverbial sense. So here he's using Unara in an adverbial sense. Nindra means which stands. Uh, stands here implies which exists. So the substance that stands knowingly. In other words, the substance that exists and knows its existence is the implication. In other words, what he refers to here as Unra Nindra Porul, he's referring to Satchit, uh, the one substance that actually exists and that knows its existence. So here Nam is referring to our real nature. So what he is saying here in this first sentence is that when we investigate, we will see that except ourselves as we actually are, there is no time and no place. In other words, there is only ourself, there is no time, no place. Um, <clears throat> then he goes on to say, um, Nam Udumbel, Nal Nadul, uh, Nam Padavam. Uh, that means if we are a body, we will be ensnared in time and place. Um, then he asks, Nam Udumbo. But are we a body? Um, <clears throat> the, the, again, it's a rhetorical question. When he asks, are we a body? We need to understand, no, we are not a body. Um, so it's only when we are, uh, take ourselves to be a body that we seem to be in, ensnared in time and space. But are we a body? And then he goes, he, he concludes by saying, Nam Indru Andru Endrum Andru. Nadu ingu angu ingum ondru. Al namundu. Nal nad il nam. What that means is since we are the one, now, then, and always, the one in place, here, there, and everywhere. Namundu. Uh, there is we, or we alone. The implication is we alone are. Uh, um, um, <clears throat> uh, yes, and he says another nam at the end. So he says, when he says namundu nam, he means there is we, we. He's emphasizing that we alone exist. Nal nadu il. Um, time and space do not exist. We can also take it as namundu nal nadu il nam. We exist. The timeless and spaceless we, the we who are devoid of time and space. So clearly here, Bhagavan is saying that there is no time and no space. It's only because we rise as ego, take ourselves to be a body, we therefore seem to be ensnared in time and space. Um, this verse, um, Bhagavan composed this verse while composing the other verses of Uludhanapadu, but on the day he composed this verse, he first composed it in a slightly different form. 
And then he modified it. So the original form of this verse, which is verse 13 of Upadesha Tanipakal, is slightly different. It's no, very, very much the same, but it's not exactly the same. What he, says in, what he said in this original version is, na mantri na ledu, except we, where is time? In other words, he's saying, there is no time, there is only we. There is only ourselves. Nam nam me nadadu. Nam udl ennum enil. Nam nal unnum. That means, uh, if not investigating ourselves, we think we are the body. So if we not investigating ourselves think we are the body, um, uh, that implies we think we're the body because we haven't investigated ourselves. He doesn't directly say that, but that's the implication. If, because of not investigating ourselves, we think we are the body. But what's actually said there is, if we, not investigating ourselves, think we are the body, uh, time will swallow us. Namudumbo, are we the body? Um, Nadu nam indru sendru varunal endrum ondru. In the present, past, and future times, we are always one. Adanal nam undu nal nal under nam. Therefore, there is we, we who have swallowed time. So this is very beautiful. What Bhagavan implies here, if we think we have a body because we haven't investigated ourselves, time will swallow us. And remember, time, um, Bhagavan is, is using Tamil word here. The word he uses for ta time in here in Tamil is nal. Nal means, it also means day. It implies time. In Sanskrit, the word for time is kala. Kala also means death. Because death, that is, death is going to swallow all of us. Time is going to swallow all of us. So when he says, if we are body, time will swallow us, he means death will come and, in time, death will come and take us. But how can we avoid death? How can we avoid being swallowed by time? If we investigate ourselves and see what we actually are, we will see that we are always one, past, present, and future, and that what actually exists is only we, we who have swallowed time. So if we don't investigate ourselves, time will swallow us. If we do investigate ourselves, we will swallow time. When he says we will swallow time, that means time ceases, will cease to exist. So we have a choice. Do we want to be swallowed by time or do we want to swallow time? Do we want to be swallowed by death or do we want to swallow death? If we want to swallow time and swallow death, we need to investigate who am I. If we don't investigate who am I, if we don't investigate who am I deeply and keenly enough, time will swallow us. So it, it, it's very, very beautiful uh, uh, verse. But he later modified it in order to include both time and space. But what he says about time is also true. That is, we are we are caught up in time and space because we take ourselves to be a body. If we want to free ourselves from time and space, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. We need to investigate ourselves. So that's why I said when in the in the 
verse 16 of Ludnapoli, when he says, Nadon Karl, when we investigate, what he implies is when we investigate ourselves, because in the uh, original version, he says, if we don't investigate, if because of not investigating ourselves, we think we are the body. So what we need to investigate is ourselves. <laughs> if we investigate ourselves, we will see that we are eternal, pure, infinite being, and that there's no such thing as time and space. So how do time and space come into existence? Time and space exist only for ourselves as ego. That is only when we rise as ego, but we identify ourselves as a body and are thereby caught up in time and space. In waking and dream, we experience time and place. In sleep, we experience neither time nor place because we are we as ego are not uh, not present in sleep. That ego is absent in sleep. What exists in sleep is only ourself, one only without a second, as emphasized in that Brahadaranyaka uh, Upanishad. But in sleep, there's no other thing. That is what. But that is the core of Bhagavan's teachings. In sleep, there is neither body nor world. There no time, no space. There is only we. So, if we want to, if we want to experience sleep eternally, not just go in and out of sleep. If we want to experience sleep eternally, we need to investigate ourselves and know ourselves as we actually are here and now, and then we will experience the eternal sleep that is known as Churya. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. I wrote a whole chapter in um, Happiness in the Art of Being about this. I can't remember what I wrote in the chapter, but it all boils down to, I mean, Bhagavan has said everything in these, um, in this verse, in the two versions of this one verse. Uh, time and space, they are just a mental fabrication. It's only, only when we rise as ego, time and space seem to exist. In sleep, there is no time. It's only waking up, we say, oh, I slept for half an hour, I slept for eight hours or whatever. Um, but it's only in relation to the time as we experience it in waking and dream, but sleep seems to have a duration. But in sleep itself, there is no time and no space because there's no ego and therefore no identification with the body. All differences come into existence only when we rise as ego. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludnaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. That everything includes time and space. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist, including time and space. Ego itself is everything, including time and space. That is what ego sees as time and space and as all the, all other things, is only itself. If it sees itself as it actually is, then time and space and everything in time and space, all, all second things, all other things disappear. And what then remains is what alone always exists, one only without a second. So this question and that, um, and that um, first question actually tied together very nicely. So it's uh, fortuitous that this question was asked uh, today.
The next question is actually related. As sleep is beneficial to the body, mind, is it possible that the waking state allows self to experience the appearance of limitation? Um, why? Our real nature never experiences limitation. What experiences limitations is only ego. Bhagavan makes this clear in verse 4 of Uludunapadu. What he says in verse 4 of Uludunapadu is... Um, Urubum tanayin uluhu paramatran. If one self is a form, the world and God will be likewise. For all forms are limited. So we experience limitation only when we rise as ego and take ourselves to be a form. So it's only for ego but that form seems to exist. If one self is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So it's only for the limited Away, the form limited awareness called ego, but forms seem to exist. Um, uh, then he says, Kanalal Kakshi on Do. Superficially, Kanalal Kakshi on Do means, is there a, something seen without an eye? But that is not the meaning Bhagavan. Bhagavan meant it in a much deeper sense than that. What Bhagavan, as Bhagavan explained, what he meant by this is, can the nature of what is seen be otherwise than the nature of the eye? So can the can the can what is seen be otherwise than the eye? Can meaning can it be of a, a different nature? So if the eye that sees, namely, is a form, in other words, if the eye that sees is ego, since it takes itself to be a form, it will see only forms. If the eye that sees is formless, and therefore, what is formless is obviously unlimited, only forms limit. So whatever is, whatever is a form is limited, whatever is formless is unlimited. So if the eye is unlimited, it can't see limited things, it can see only the, uh, the, the, um, the, it, what is unlimited. What is unlimited is itself. So the real eye, the unlimited eye, sees nothing other than itself. Then he ends by saying, um uh kan uh, adutan antamila kan. That means the I is oneself, the infinite I. So what we actually are is not this this here I, when he uses the word I, E Y E, he's using it, he's using it as a as a metaphor for awareness. So when he says can the seen be otherwise than the eye, he means can the seen be otherwise than the awareness that knows it. Can, can what is known be otherwise, be of a different nature to the awareness that knows it? So when the awareness limits itself as a form, as that, that is when awareness limits itself as a form, then that awareness is called ego, which is not the pure awareness. It's, a, it's an adjunct conflated awareness. That awareness sees, knows only form. But the pure awareness that we actually are, the infinite awareness, when he says infinite I, he means infinite awareness. And that infinite awareness, because it's infinite, it's formless, it can know only formlessness. Um, so um, the, the question is, does self need waking to see itself as uh, the self, as it's called, 
I think means what we actually are. What we actually are is pure awareness, which never knows forms. What knows forms is only ourself as ego. Um, regarding the need for sleep, yes, that is um, in in the, in that I think verse nineteen of that uh, 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 chapter four, section three, if I remember correctly, but of. Um, but I was reading, but um, yes, uh, chapter four, uh, section three, I think verse 19, um, the, the analogy is given there, this in Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, the analogy is given there of a bird flying in the sky. A bird can fly this way and that way in the sky only for so long. Sooner or later, it needs to return to its nest. It needs to return to a place of rest. Bhagavan also uses the same analogy in the, uh, or a very similar analogy in the final verse of Aranachashtakam. So, we, we uh, as ego, we fly around between waking and dream, but we can't continue wake, be, being in waking and dream indefinitely. Sooner or later, we get tired. We have to return. So, sleep is the state, but ego, by subsiding in e in sleep, ego, so to speak, its batteries are recharged. Though ego itself doesn't exist in sleep, when it rises, it rises refreshed with all fresh vigor. And to dance around again, to bounce about between waking and dream until it again becomes tired and again has to subside back in sleep. <clears throat> One very interesting thing about sleep, this, this, this body and mind seem to be very much like machines. This body seems to be like a um, an engine. It needs fuel. It needs it needs um, food and so on. It needs air and it needs. To, it's like an internal combustion engine, and the mind is like a um, a, a computer system. And, uh, but no, the, the, uh, 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 um. An internal combustion engine requires petrol. So long as it's got petrol, it'll, it can carry on running. Um, the, the computer, so long as it's got electricity powering it, it, it runs. But you, you can't recharge a, a computer simply by switching it off. You can't recharge a car simply by switching it off. It has to be... More power has to be put in it. But this body and mind, how are they rejuvenated from sleep? They In sleep, what, what, from where does the mind and body, or the, the root of the mind and body, namely ego, how does it get power from sleep? Simply by ceasing to exist and remaining as it actually is, it regains its power and again it rises up it comes into existence again as ego with all fresh vigor. So the source of power by which ego is operating is the power of just being, of pure being. So just by being in sleep, we regain our power. So though the body and mind seem to be machine-like, there's a fundamental difference between this 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 composite machine of, consisting of body and mind and any other type of machine. This machine, simply by switching off, by ceasing, subsiding and ceasing to exist, regains its power and comes into existence again.
So though it's in some ways this body and mind are similar to machines, before striving this body and mind is ego. And ego derives its power from its source, namely Satchit. In which it's always in contact, but still it needs to sometimes subside and just be of that Satchit in order to regain its, uh, its power to continue uh, dancing around, causing all sorts of mischief. Michael, did you want to continue? Uh, it's been um, about two hours. Are, are there more questions? There are sort of kind of two, three quests, but three questions. But really, I think, yeah, I, mm, let me see. Um, I think one is a, a question about the sort of predestination which we've covered a few times. And yeah. the second one is whether this one without a second has a similar implication to uh, to what comes must go. Uh, and the first one is uh, whether is everything that happens predetermined or uh, okay. is it spontaneous, that sort of thing. This, uh, there uh, have been some questions asked on the comments on uh, YouTube recently about this. I was actually thinking of... Um, of addressing this subject today, but because I was sent this question about uh, one only without a second. So can we keep that, that question for next time? When I'll take, uh, if I remember, I'll take up this subject next time of, of, about predestination. But what is the question about uh, related to one only without a second? Yes, it said that one uh, follow-up question to the explanation of one without a second. Is this similar uh, to the practical implication, uh, sorry, uh, sort of is the practical implication of one without a second uh, the same as the practical implication of what comes must go? Because would that be surrendering? Meaning that when problems come up to disturb us, are we to say these will go away This uh, and this surrender and just surrender and turn within again? Yeah, we we can yeah we we can see it, there's a connection that is since there is one only without a second anything that comes is not real and therefore what is not real it, it has come and it has to go so all what comes and goes is not real um what what is what what is ever existent is one only without a second namely our own existence I am um. Yes, that is when we when we understand that what actually exists is what is permanent, what is unchanging, what is self-shining. In other words, I am. This I am is not that is I am means our own existence, our own fundamental awareness is not affected by anything. That is whether we are whether our life is uh, pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, whether we are young or old, whether we are um, energetic or tired, whether we are healthy or sick, whatever whatever be the condition of the mind and body, the one thing that remains ever unchanged is this fundamental existence awareness that always shines as I am. So that is alone what is real. So 
in Bhagavan's path, our aim is to hold on to what is real and to let go of and thereby to let go of what is unreal. So the more we hold on to I am, the less we will be concerned about other things. Now, we, we're all getting older. Some of us may be relatively young, some of us may be relatively old, but we, our life is passing us day by day. We know we're, getting, we're all getting near, nearer to the end of this life. Uh, some of us may be closer, some of us may be further. But none of us know how far we are. It could be the next moment we could snuff out. So the, this is this this life is very temporary. But the more we we put Bhagavan's teachings into practice, seriously put it into practice, the less concerned we will be about the inevitability of death. The less concerned we will be about in, in, so long as this body is there, we all face difficulties of one form or another. Whether we are the poorest person in the world or the richest person, whether we are the healthiest person or the sickest person, everyone is experiencing problems of one kind or another. And problems come and problems go. The, the problems that we experience now that loom so large in our life because they're affecting us now, after some years, we'll have forgotten about them, and some other problems will be looming large. This is the nature of life. So one of the, the, the first qualification that is stated in all the classical uh, uh, texts of Advaita, the first qualification that is required to follow this path is nitya anitya vastu vivika. That is the ability to distinguish what is permanent from what is impermanent? What is permanent is only our own being, one only without a second. What is impermanent is everything else, including this ego. So the more we, we, we clearly discern this distinction between what is permanent and what is impermanent, the less we will be concerned about what is impermanent. So the easier it will be for us to surrender, to let go, to be unconcerned about life throws troubles at all of us. We all face troubles, health problem, financial problem, this problem, that problem, relationship problem. Life is full of problems. Just look at it, open the news and see, but the world is full of problems. And we don't have to see the problems of others. We, each of us are experiencing problems of our own in one form or another. So life is full of problems, but all these things are just passing. They are part, it's just a dream. It's a passing show. None of it is real. So that conviction will become stronger and stronger to the extent to which we put Bhagavan's teachings into practice. That is, the more we hold on to what is permanent, namely our own being, <clears throat> the less we will be concerned about the imperm what is impermanent. So yes, all, <clears throat> everything in Bhagavan's teachings, if we think about it deeply enough, every aspect of Bhagavan's teaching is connected to to, in some way or other, to this central thing, but what we need to hold on to is what is permanent. What we need to let go of is what is impermanent. What is permanent is only ourself. What is impermanent is everything else, including everything that we now seem to be. 
So yes, there is a connection. Um, the, the practical, whatever teaching of Bhagavan there is, the practical implication is all the same. They're all Bhagavan's teaching. They're all point, they're like the spokes of a wheel. They're from so many directions. They're all pointing at the central hub. The central hub is the simple practice of Atmavichara, self-attentiveness, which is itself self-surrender. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Ulyanapdu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this is, is giving up, up everything. Why? Because if we investigate what ego is, ego will subside and dissolve back in its source. As he said in the previous verse, Tedinalo Tumpidicum, and when the ego ceases, everything else will cease. So we cannot practice Atmavichara without simultaneously practicing self-surrender. Because Atmavichara is the, is the ultimate practice of, uh, of uh, self-surrender. That is, all other practices of self-surrender finally lead up to this ultimate practice. By holding on to ourself, we are letting go of everything else. Our self is what is permanent, everything else is impermanent. So we shouldn't be concerned about what is impermanent. We should be concerned about what is permanent. That is why it is stressed. The first qualification to follow this path, we should be able to discern, distinguish uh, what is permanent from what is impermanent. In other words, we should be able to distinguish ourself from everything else, including everything that we now seem to be. Of course, we don't, none of us start off with perfect Viveka, but at least we should have some rudimentary form of Viveka to distinguish ourselves from everything else. Once we've distinguished ourselves from everything else, then naturally Vairagya will follow, which that's a second qualification, uh, because um, we have desire for other things only so long as we take ourselves to be this this body, this person, and then as this person we need so many things. We need food, we need clothing, we need shelter, we need friends, we need this, we need that, we need um, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, billions of dollars, more, whatever we have, we need more and more and more. That's the nature of this ego. But the more we cling to our being, the more we let go of everything, the more we realize we don't need anything. So, it, and then this Vairagya leads to the next uh, six qualifications. I can't remember what they are. And then finally, the final qualification is Mumukshutva. Mumukshutva uh, uh, means the, 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 the sincere love moksha, the sincere love to let go of everything and to be free of everything. That is the ultimate thing. None of us really have that love yet sufficiently. That's why we are still in, we still seem to be in bondage because we don't have sufficient love for moksha. Uh, we, we, Bhagavan once said, Everyone who comes here say they say they have come only for moksha. But if I show a small sample of moksha, all the crows will fly away and I'll be sitting here alone. That, that is, Bhagavan said that for a very good reason. We need to understand 
we don't yet have sufficient love for moksha. If we had sufficient love for moksha, it's ours here and now. At any time we can turn within and merge back into our source, letting go of everything else. Because moksha means being free, letting go. We have to let go in order to be free. Nothing is binding. We seem to be bound, but nothing is actually binding us. This body and mind are not holding on to us. We are holding on to them. So the bondage is in, we, that is, ego binds itself by its attachment. That's why Bhagavan says, Uru Patriundam, coming, grasping form, it comes into existence. The verb, Tamil verb Patru, means to hold, to grasp, to cling. Patru is also a noun, but means attachment. So attachment, and what attaches is by binding. So as Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Ulinab, ego itself is bondage. So we need to be ready to let go of everything if we want moksha. If we are not yet ready to let go of everything and to turn within and merge back into a source, we don't yet have sufficient love for moksha. That's what Bhagavan was pointing out there. So the ultimate thing, first we need to distinguish what is real from un what is unreal. Then we need to get to lose desire for what is unreal, what is impermanent. Then ultimately we need to have so much love for what is permanent, but we're ready to let go of everything else. So all these things are connected. But whichever way we look at Bhagavan's teachings, it all comes back to this central hub of self-investigation. The whole problem we face now, as Bhagavan said, even when people ask, Bhagavan, why did ego come into existence? Bhagavan said, we can't say why ego didn't come into existence, but why it, came, why it exists now is because of abhichara, because of non-investigation. If we investigate it, uh, we'll find there's no such thing at all. It will take flight, autum pidicum. So it, it's all, all connected. If we understand Bhagavan's teachings connect, correctly, from whatever angle we approach it, it all connects back with this central hub of self-investigation. That's what it's all about. Because this alone is the solution to all our problems. Ego, we seem to be ego because of abhichara. By vichara, we will see ourselves as we actually are, and all problems will be solved. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya.